you had to do that song, it blew my voice out. But there's a water. <laughs> ah, there we go. <clears throat> yeah, that was fun. I haven't sung that in a while. James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1. Now, just to set the record straight, uh, you know, I, I haven't turned 65 yet. It's coming soon. <clears throat> My wife's sister, who uh, her, her uh, sister and husband were actually here at this church many years ago, back in the 80s, mid-80s, 84 to 86 or so. He taught in the school and they served here. You remember them, Jerry and Debbie. Uh, Jeannie has a beautiful soprano voice <clears throat> and sang. Uh, she said to say hi to several people. But uh, when, when Jeannie turned 55, and she's my age, well, she's actually already 65, but when she turned 55, she was talking to my wife on the phone. She said, oh, I'm halfway to 60. And Jan said, actually, no, you're halfway to 110. <laughs> It's your, oh, <laughs> thanks for that. So I guess I'm almost halfway to 130. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. You're as young as you feel, right? I feel old. <laughs> oh. You know, it's always a pleasure being here. I, I really appreciate uh, all you folks here at First Baptist. I appreciate your pastor. He's a good friend, and, and I'm thankful for him and the ministry that he has with you here. <clears throat> if you didn't get an outline, uh, does anybody have them back there? I know they were sitting on the podium back there. Anybody that needs an outline for this evening? Yeah, there's a couple up here that could use it. If you don't mind, brother, thank you. Just up here, there's a couple, and... Just wave your arms at him. Nobody will pay any attention. Just that we're all looking at you right now. <laughs> Anybody else? Want an outline? Okay. I, I don't know. I find it helpful when I'm sitting, listening to a sermon, to be able to follow the flow of thought with an outline, so I always try to provide those. So hopefully that is helpful to you. And I'm going to just go with this microphone, guys. So uh, defer to this. So as I said before, the theme of the book of James is living faith. That is faith that is genuine. In this book, James gives 10 marks of living faith. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, a little over a year ago, we saw that those with living faith grow through trials. This morning we began James' discussion of the second mark of living faith, seen in chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. We're not going to be able to see, look at all of those verses today, but uh, in those verses, he tells us that those with living faith cultivate a Bible-based worldview. That is, they shape their lives according to Scripture. That doesn't just happen. So in 19 through 21, James challenges his readers to welcome the Bible's teaching 
But it involves more than just learning and more than just enjoying the teachings of the Bible. So in today's text, we will see that it involves obeying what it says. This morning, we saw that we welcome the scriptures in order to achieve the righteousness of God. Tonight, we will see that those with living faith obey the scriptures and receive the blessings of God. Would you read it together with me? Follow as I read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Don't just hear it, do it. Charles Swindoll illustrates this passage well in his book entitled, Improving Your Serve. I wanna read a lengthy passage from his book here. He says, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas now to pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until a new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and move to Europe for six to eight months. And I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you directions and instructions. I leave and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist room. She's doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite disco station. I look around and notice waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed. I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world is going on, man? Now, what do you mean, Chuck? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yes, sure, I got every one of them. As a matter of fact, Chuck, we have had a letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided the personnel into small groups to discuss many of the things that you wrote. Some of the things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay. Okay, you got my letters. 
You studied them and meditated upon them, discussed and even memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do? We didn't do anything about them. That's the situation James describes for us. Only dealing with something far more important than a business. James teaches that those with living faith obey the scriptures. Consequently, they receive the blessings of God. Our text falls into three sections. Verse 22 is a command. It is about obeying. Verses 23 and 24 illustrate the futility of failing to obey. And then verse 25 gives the result of obeying. So we learn first that we welcome the word of God when we do what it says. We saw this morning that verses 19 through 21 challenge us to welcome the word of God. Verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We're to welcome the word of God. Accept it. Make it at home. The word translated receive was used in a description of receiving guests into your home where you, you make them feel welcome and comfortable. You anticipate their coming. You plan for them and prepare for them. James says this is how you should approach the word of God. You should welcome it into your life. I asked this this morning, when was the last time you said, man, I can't wait to get to church, and it had nothing to do with seeing friends or enjoying an activity, but you couldn't wait to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. That's what James envisions. You need to ask if it's something that you look forward to and miss when you don't receive it. Now, I'm not just talking about hearing preaching. But those times that we carve out in our, our schedules to open the word of God on an individual basis as well. Do you miss it when you've been lax? Is it something that you only fit in when it's convenient? Are you bored with the word of God? Do you just endure it? Are you distracted when it's taught and preached? In verse 22... James challenges us and tells us that it is more than just listening to the Word of God. Verse 2 is inseparably connected to verse 21. Uh, 22, I meant, is inseparably, inseparably connected to verse 21. A literal translation of the opening of verse 22 is, but be a doer. But that word, but, connects the two verses and shows that welcoming the word is not just listening. It's not even delighting in the word of God. He takes it to another level. He tells us that listening alone is insufficient. The words, be doers of the word and not hearers only, are a forceful command. The negative statement, not hearers only, balances out the positive side of the command. Now when he says to us, and not hearers only, he's highlighting the way the Bible usually uses words for hearing and listening. The Bible uses these words typically as the foundation for obeying. 
That's why Jesus punctuated his teaching by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Is he talking just about listening? No. You must listen. You, you certainly must listen when the word is preached. You must listen when it's read. You must listen when it's taught. This applies at home and at church and wherever the word of God is read and explained. But hear me well, knowing your Bible is insufficient. That's only the beginning point. James is emphasizing a prevalent problem in his day and a problem these days. Many churches are populated with people who love to listen to good preaching. They love to know what the text means. Some of them can tell you all the details of prophecy, the 70 weeks of Daniel, and he can even distinguish between the two beasts. They even know the three Greek words for love. But their lives are an absolute wreck. You see, listening alone is insufficient. Verse 22 goes on to say that obedience is what God commands. He says, be doers of the word. Oh, that's a strong command. It is clear that James did not want his word to be mistaken for a friendly suggestion. Now you might want to consider obeying. No, it's a command. Be a doer. And that means that obedience is a primary responsibility. There's something else there that stresses its importance. In the original word order, as in our text, the command to be a doer stands at the very beginning of the sentence. That emphasizes it in the Greek. Obedience is what God commands, and this is not a secondary consideration. This is primary. Furthermore, not only is it a primary responsibility, but I learned from the way he worded this that obedience is a personal responsibility. He's chosen a form of a command that places responsibility for obedience squarely on our shoulders. We would readily understand that from the fact that we have a command here in our English text. But he makes it very explicit in the Greek. This is your responsibility. Now this is significant because it means that none of us can depend upon someone else for our success. And none of us can pass the buck for our failure. So how is your walk with the Lord on an individual personal level. Do you shoulder the responsibility for spiritual growth on an individual level? James is saying that this is the responsibility of living faith. Verse 22 also tells us that obedience is an ongoing responsibility. He's worded the command in such a way to emphasize its ongoing force. Be doers. Be doers. You could even legitimately translate this, always be a doer. It's ongoing. It's not a command that is in force only when you like it. It isn't in force only when obedience is convenient. It's not in force only if we see the immediate benefits of, of obedience. We saw earlier in James that there are times 
when we cannot see what God is doing. And obedience is hard. In those times, we need to remember that we do know about God. I certainly know that God knows more than I know. I don't see it all, but God does. I also know that God is supremely good. And I know that God does all things for my good and his glory. He's promised this, even when I cannot see it. So from this foundation, James is saying that we need to step up and act like men and women of God. We need to obey his word. So verse 22 teaches us that listening alone is insufficient, that obedience is what God commands. Now notice he also adds that excuses only reveal self-deception. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When we make excuses for disobedience, we're self-deceived, and it's a dangerous game. It's not simply saying, oh, oops, I, I guess I made a mistake. No, if you live a lifestyle of disobedience, if you get this wrong, it's not like missing an answer on Jeopardy, which is fairly inconsequential. Unless you've, you know, bid the farm on the final Jeopardy. I don't know. If I don't know the answer in Jeopardy, so what? But many of us take that so what approach to a lifestyle of disobedience. Listen, friends, eternal issues are at stake. This word translated deceive occurs only, only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul there was explaining his work on behalf of the Colossians and some other believers who were under the attack of people who were perverting the gospel itself. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, Colossians 2, 2 through 4, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may, and here's our word, delude you with plausible arguments. No one may delude you, de deceive you, even with plausible arguments. His concern was that deception, even well-presented, attractive deception, would lead his readers away from Christ. And in this passage, knowing Christ is what was at stake. The same is true in James' context. He's setting up a discussion where he says in chapter 2, verse 14 of James, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. Eternal issues are at stake here. And I don't have time to explain all of that, so now you're just going to have to ask your pastor to explain James 2 to you. I set him up, boy. <laughs> but don't deceive yourself. In verses 23 and 24, James offers an illustration of failure to obey. 
I believe the point of the illustration is that we misuse the word of God when we forget what it says. To put it another way, we misuse the word of God when we fail to do what it says. Excuse me. This illustration has two parts. Look at verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in, the, in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The point of this illustration is that, the misuse, that it is misuse of a mirror to look at your reflection in it and then forget what you saw. Looking at it is futile if you're not going to remember what you saw. It has no value. Don't bother. Now, a mirror can give a clear image. The, the mirrors we use today, of course, were not invented until the 14th century. The mirrors in James' day were just pieces of metal, highly polished. Yet, a good one was very effective. So he pictures a man taking that piece of metal and examining his face in the reflection. Some have suggested that the man's failure lies in the fact that he just glanced in the mirror and didn't take a good look. But the word that James uses here, looks at his face, does not support that idea. This word is used in, for example, Luke 12, 27, when Jesus said, consider the lilies, how they grow. Same word, consider. He wanted them to think about this. Hebrews 3, 1. I'll quote it from the NIV. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts. Consider. Look. Same word. That certainly doesn't mean a glance in the mirror. James is describing someone who actually takes the mirror seriously. He looks long and hard to see all of the features of his face. He examines himself. He truly sees what the mirror has to offer, good or bad. I think that a mirror is a fitting illustration because the word of God alone gives a true reflection of ourselves, doesn't it? It reveals what is in the depths of our hearts, and we will only see it if we look into the word of God. But James' point is in verse 24. The reflection has no value if we forget what we see. <laughs> it's foolish and unthinkable that a man could scrutinize his appearance and then immediately forget what he saw. If he did, it would be a misuse of the mirror and it makes the work of examining one's face in the mirror futile. What's the point? I could probably give many illustrations, but uh, many years ago, I was meeting with some other pastors to plan a conference. We had lunch first, and of course, we had some great steaks and baked potatoes. Then we went right into our planning meeting. We all sat around and planned out the conference, and after that, we fellowshiped for a little. Before I left to drive home, I went into the bathroom. When I looked in the mirror, I saw that I had a black pepper stuck right in my front teeth. Oh, man, I wish someone had pointed that out to me earlier. <laughs> I immediately removed it, so the mirror served a purpose. 
But James envisions someone who looks in the mirror and says, Oh, great. Look at that black thing in my teeth. But by the time he looks down at the sink, he's already forgotten what he just saw in the mirror and just goes on his way with that pepper still lodged in between his front teeth. I mean, it's ridiculous. What's the use of looking into the mirror if that's how you're going to respond? I mean, you could use many illustrations of my hair standing straight up, you know, or whatever. My friends, why are you here? Why do you have your Bibles open in front of you? What are you going to do when you walk out the doors this evening? Isn't that the issue? That brings us to verse 25 where we see the result of obedience. It's amazing when he tells us that we receive blessings from God when his word shapes our lives. Look what he says. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The point of the verse comes at the very end. He will be blessed. Sometimes the world in which we live requires preaching that can be misunderstood. We live in a world that is marked by individualism, hedonism, that is doing whatever brings pleasure, and mediocrity. People take a casual approach to everything. Nothing is holy anymore. And in a context like that, we need to stress obedience to the word as James did. And sometimes in our zeal to counteract the growing lack of commitment, we can come across as if the Christian life is just raw duty, sterile, cold, and joyless. Oh, my friends, that is not the picture of true Christianity. Obedience is not cold and sterile. Obedience is the pathway to true joy. If we do what the Bible tells us to do, we are blessed in doing it. He tells us that the word of God alone brings true blessings. Joshua 1.8, Joshua 1.8 puts it this way. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, don't mistake what he means by prosperous. He's not promising a full bank account. Prosperity means to thrive, to flourish. In the scriptures, it is first of all a spiritual concept. He's saying if you will listen to the word and obey the word, the Bible will bring you spiritual prosperity and success. I think that James, in echoing that theme, has a specific blessing in view. Look at verse 21 again. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, notice, which is able to save your souls. Remember from this morning, the end of that verse sets up tonight's text. 
We saw this morning that he is writing to believers and that the Bible uses the word save as deliverance first from the penalty of sin, our initial salvation, but also deliverance from the power of sin, that's ongoing growth, and deliverance from the presence of sin, one day future, when we will be glorified. Salvation encompasses the whole thing, and in this context, he has in view primarily this ongoing deliverance that we call sanctification. We are day by day transformed into the image of Christ, more like him. He says that the word of God is able to do this in your life. I think that's the specific blessing James has in view here. It is the promise that the word of God will make us more like Christ. Oh, that's the epitome of blessing. Do you want to be more like Jesus? If not, why not? And only the word can produce this, and it will produce it because the word of God is the perfect word. He calls it the perfect law in this verse. The law that James has in view is not the law of Moses. I think it includes it, but it is more than that. Notice he calls it perfect, which means complete. It is the complete law. Christ told us that he came to, com to fulfill the law or complete it. All of the law flowed to him, to Christ. James, the book of James, was the first New Testament book to be written. James couldn't say, well, you need to obey the 66 books of the Bible. He had 39 at his disposal, and he was writing number 40. So what he is saying here is to look at the Old Testament message and how it brought us to Christ. It, it, it made us uh, complete in Christ. This is the gospel message, a Christ-centered message. It is the message that we today know as the word of God in both Old and New Testament. It is perfect, and this Christ-centered gospel gives liberty, freedom. The perfect word of God gives true freedom. Oh, it is a sad tragedy that too often we learn far too late that it is sin that enslaves. The irony is that we pursue our sin because we think it's liberating. I won't be bound by rules and laws. I can't wait to get out of the house so I can do what I want to do. And in the end, we find that our rebellious choices forge an unbreakable change and only the gospel can set us free. I've shared with you about our fourth-born son. That was Andrew. 17 years old, he knew better how to live his life. He didn't accept the gospel and he moved out because he wanted to live the way he wanted to live. Be free, no rules. At 19, he was a dad. In his 20s, he became a heroin addict, enslaved to sin. I'm happy to tell you that by the grace of God, the gospel broke through all that. And Andrew was saved in the Wayne County Jail. 
and is, has grown since and has been broken free from those bonds of slavery. He's truly free now. He wasn't then. Oh, listen, when you submit to Jesus, he said in John 8, 36, if he sets you free, you will be free indeed. You submit to him, you'll find that you'll be free for the very first time. Free to please God. Now some will wonder how submission and limitation can bring freedom. Answer this, which experiences greater freedom? A locomotive that has no tracks or a locomotive that is confined by the tracks? The one without tracks, no limitations, is a wreck. <laughs> But the other, because of its confines, moves and is useful. In the very same way, the word of God limits us, but in so doing, it gives us the ability for the first time to please God, and it makes us useful, and it brings us joy. Oh, the word of God alone is able to bring us blessing. But notice that the word of God brings blessings only to those who do what it says. And this brings us full circle to the command. Be doers of the word. He's already stressed the importance of fulfilling the command, but he stretches it out further here in verse 25. Notice what he says. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He describes someone who saturates his mind with the word, looks into it. That envisions someone who bends over for a closer look. It describes intense examination. Then he adds the word perseveres, also translated continues. So they saturate their minds with the word continually. It is the goal, day in and day out, we seek to think biblically. Friends, do you want blessing that really counts? Do you want true and lasting joy? Hear the word. Learn the word. Read the word. Study the word. And listen as it's preached. But then... Act on the word. Act on it. Act on what you've heard. Did we get your letters, Lord? Oh, yeah, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have a letter study every Friday night. We even divided the congregation into small groups to discuss many of the things you wrote. Oh, some of the things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs, and one or two have memorized an entire letter or two. Well, there's great stuff in those letters. Okay, you got my letters. You studied them and meditated on them, discussed them, and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? That is the question. Let's pray. Lord God, we plead 
that you will help us not to take lightly James' admonition. Help us not to misuse your word. Help us not to hear it preached, even read it and study it throughout the week and then do nothing with it. Oh, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And in this way, we ask you to make us day by day more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.